Welcome to the LD Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast is sponsored by Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. Visit thinklearning.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Learning and Development Podcast sponsored by Think Learning. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by CEO and founder of Anders Pink, Stephen Walsh. For those not familiar, Stephen is an incredibly successful entrepreneur from within the content curation and learning and development space team, which leads us on to Stephen's latest venture, Anders Pink of which Stephen co-founded with Steve Rayson in 2014. Anders Pink aims to help teams stay smart through continuous learning and content curation. Anders Pink are also able to embed curated content into your learning platforms. And this is something I'm really keen to find out more about later in the L&D podcast. So do stay tuned. Stephen is author of the book Content Curation for Learning, and he in total possesses over 20 years in learning technology and communications roles. Today, we're also going to discover how Stephen is supporting organizations with creating habits, and we're going to provide you with some tools you can implement right after listening to this podcast so that you can improve your processes for continuous learning and content curation. So fasten your seatbelts. This is a deep dive into the world of content curation for learning and development professionals. Welcome, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing really well, Nick. Thanks very much for having me on. Delighted to be here. L&D Podcast Discovery. Questions to set the scene. In your view, what is content curation and why do you think it's important? Yes, yeah, great, great place to start. But when I think about content curation, I, I, I like to just kind of park the whole idea of L&D and kind of professional use and just think of us as individuals because we're all, we're all learners. We're all keen to stay on top of whatever topics we're interested in, whether that's personal interests in football or, or professional interests, whatever it might be. And as we kind of sit here mid-2018, I think my question for listeners is how hard or easy is it to find what you want? You know, we have this incredible resource available to us uh, on the internet, but when we go into it and look for information, we experience uh, what uh, Mark Schaefer has called content shock, which is you type something into Google sales tips and you get 200 million results and mm -hmm. good luck getting beyond the first, the first three or four. So, so we're overwhelmed with content. We have it coming at us through, um, through internet, through social media feeds, through LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. We have emails from colleagues. We've got news feeds. All of that comes out and drowns us in, in, in information. And I think that's a real challenge for people. You know, um, a, a phrase that is sometimes used around this is information overload. Um, I prefer the phrase filter failure. I'm quoting Clay Shirky and he says, it's, it's, it's about letting too much of the wrong stuff come at us. And I think, you know, if you're anything like me, you've had that experience where you go looking for something on the web, you get distracted, you follow a link, an hour later, you're down some rabbit hole watching a cat video that's not necessarily helping you. <laughs> sure, and I think sure. side effect of that is, it's quite stressful having a lot of noise and a lot of information coming at us. It's not very productive. And there's a, there's a, I think a poor ratio between signal and noise, you know, good quality content. It's hard for it to stand out with the volume of content that's produced. You know, 3 million blog, blog posts are published every day. 99.99% of them aren't relevant to us as individuals, but some of them are. And the risk is if you don't stay on top of the right content, you literally run the risk of waking up dumber than you went to bed. You know, you, when you wake up in the morning, more information has been published on the topics that are interesting to you. And it's just incredibly hard to stay on top of them. So for me, content curation is trying to take back control. It's about applying sensible filters to the information that comes at us as individuals, 
as professional teams and as, as learners to help us see more of the right content and to share more of that right content with the people that matter to us in our social networks and in our team. So it's about finding, filtering, making sense of content and staying on top of that fire hose of information. Excellent. That makes perfect sense. And I think we've probably all experienced some form of social noise, particularly with things like Brexit recently, with things coming at us from all different angles. And uh, I think we've all become self-publishers. I remember years ago, we, you know, you go to the Financial Times, your financial news, or you go to Guardian Jobs for your job news. But now it's now everyone's a self-publisher. It's, it's got a very, very noisy landscape. So what are the yeah. what are the biggest challenges then that, that people tell you about when trying to leverage content curation when, when i describe this to people and just as you said there people go yeah it kind of makes sense you know i i as an individual i need better control over my filters and you know we're sitting here mid 2018 where there's been a lot of conversation about fake news echo chambers you mentioned brexit there i think brexit and the election of donald trump really shone a light on what happens if you're not controlling how information comes to you we get trapped into fake news or into echo chambers where we're surrounded by sources or people who just agree with us and then we get shocked when it turns out that we're kind of in the majority illusion where it turns out there's actually a different point of view that we're not being exposed to so i think there's a real reason for us as individuals just in how we consume news and information to get to get on top of this when i talk to people who want to do it from a professional perspective so you think inside an organization if you're trying to support a sales team or a customer service team or a leadership team and you want to curate content for them, I see a couple of challenges for people. A lot of time people are doing this innately and they're doing it with the best intentions in the world, but they're doing it manually. Uh, so, so by that, they're saying, okay, I know I need to find content that's relevant to me and to the audiences that I serve, but my only way of doing that is to go Googling it. And I think then you're just in the same problem that you were when you're trying to do it for yourself. You're, you're stepping into this fire hose of new content, trying to uh, separate the signal from the noise, trying to find the good stuff and copying it and pasting it and putting it somewhere. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely better than doing nothing. But I think the challenge that most people have around that is how do you scale that? How do you sure. do that every day for every audience and constantly keep it up to date? Because none of these topics stand still. You know, I was reading a little bit about Bitcoin and we did some analysis about Sumo on um, that as a trending topic. Last December, when Bitcoin kind of mania was really hitting, um, 40,000 articles were published every week wow. on the topic of Bitcoin. So even if you are saying, I just want to stay on top of Bitcoin, that's as narrow as I want to take things. Which of those 40,000 articles are you going to read? How are you going to make some decisions around them? Even if you spend 10 seconds looking at each of them, you know, you're not going to get anything else done in your life. So, so doing it manually, just stepping into, um, the, the firehose of information, trying to find it, that's hard work. So that's the number one challenge I think people have around content curation is how do, how do I do this at any kind of scale? The second challenge I think people have is well, where do I start with this? You know, I serve multiple audiences. I'm working in a large organization where we have multiple different teams who all have, you know, there may be some overlaps in terms of their content needs, but they're actually quite different as well. How do I, how do I figure out where to start? Who's, who's right? Who's hungry for this? Who's right to start with? Uh, and then the third thing I think people struggle with is how do I do more than just sharing links? Because, you know, it doesn't take much to find a link somewhere on the web and then just flick it on to people. Is that really helping them? And I think content curation, and I know we're going to get into it later on, is, is about more than that. It's more than just um, pointing people towards information. It's how do you make some sense of it and how do you add some value? And then how do you put it somewhere where it's actually helpful to people and it's not just adding to their noise? So where to start, how to scale it, 
how to add some value and some sense to it, and then where to put it. Those are, think, are the key challenges in terms of in terms of getting started with it. Sure, sure. And about, I guess, accessing it in a smarter way that is less of a time steal. Certainly, you mentioned some of the processes there, for example, going to Google, that that's kind of my protocol mm-hmm. before coming across Anders Pink. It's interesting that you, you pick that up. But from a, mm-hmm. from a content creation perspective, then, why is it important, in particular for this podcast, in relation to learning and development professionals, how can they be leveraging it better? Well, you know, I've been in and around the, the learning development industry for for twenty years now, and I've seen I've seen the roles change quite a lot over time. And and you know, I've enormous amount of empathy for people sitting in an L and D professional role inside an organization because you're constantly under pressure, your budget is constantly being cut, you're constantly being asked to do things faster, better, cheaper, more effectively, add more value. And traditionally, the role of L and D has been largely about design and production of content. So making courses, buying e-learning courses, building resources or classroom training events. And, you know, there's been a lot of feedback uh, in the market and it's consumer feedbacks from learners saying, thank you for doing that. That's valuable, but it's not really what we want. What we want is shorter resources embedded into the workflow. You know, we've got two minutes. We need a quick piece of advice to help us negotiate better, handle a difficult conversation, one tip that will help me win my next piece of business, and then I just need to get on with it. So there's there's big pressure on L&D to deliver you know, what's sometimes called micro-learning, short, um, snackable resources that are more in the, on the two to three-minute scale rather than the two to three-hour scale. So when I talk to L&D professionals, they're saying, okay, we get, we get this, we know we need to respond to this, but we don't have the budget to constantly make these and then constantly keep them up to date. So curation, I think, is... It's not a silver bullet, but it's certainly a, a bullet that you can add to your armory to say, we have a way to bring recent relevant content into you learning audiences, into the workflow. And it allows, I think, L&D to be more agile and to be more responsive. The, you know, L&D teams are often sure. critiqued for being slow moving or behind the curve or, you know, we need this content right now and you need to find it right now. And that puts a lot of pressure on the production process for, for L&D and the vendors that they work with. Curation allows you to, to bring it in in a more fluid, responsive way and constantly keep it up to date. And I think the, the you know, there are economic arguments and you referred to some of them earlier this can be very cost effective. You know, I'm talking about public domain content that's out there. It's already there. It doesn't cost you anything to bring it into the organization and it provides you a better service. It allows you to deliver more to learners. I really like this phrase that Jane Harsh, um, excellent commentator on, on workflow learning has used, which is L&D, stop, stop being production houses and start being more of a concierge. Start thinking about yourself as like the, the front desk of a hotel saying, what can I get for you? How can I help you? How can I deliver it to you quickly and effectively? So I think it puts a huge opportunity um, on the table for L&D to, to reinvent and to start being more about servicing people in the workflow and delivering uh, you know recent relevant content in small components and keeping it up to date for people. Excellent. Fantastic. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but the uh, the value and the time is money cliche but if, mm. if you're able to deliver more relevant content faster then it then it's win-win for everyone all around i guess so um, yeah absolutely now, i know in your book um which for those that aren't familiar as i said i will put a link in the episode notes but you wrote a book called content curation for learning uh, within that you talk about something called the seek sense and share model are you able to tell mm. the listeners a little bit more about this and why you feel or rather what you feel are the key skills required to be a successful lnd content curator yeah, uh, and you know, all credit to Harold Jarkey, great Canadian uh, writer on, on Workflow Learning. He conceived of this seek, send, share model. 
in a slightly different context, he was talking about it for personal knowledge management. But uh, my view is it lends itself really well to this to this cycle of curation. So just to say a little bit about each one of those steps, sure. we can't be covering them as we go there. So seeking is all about finding content, as the as the word might suggest. So finding relevant, timely, useful content for yourself, because you know. Uh, I think for L&D professionals, we've got to be the best example of curators. We need to continuously learn about our own industry, you know, which is constantly changing all the time and for other audiences that you serve within the organization. So, so that's about that whole concierge idea, which is who are you trying to support? Is it a sales team? Is it management and leadership team? Is it customer service team? Identify them, talk to them, figure out, well, what is it they want? You know, if, if I could deliver to you a streamlined feed of content, what would be in it? Would it be about tips, trends? Would it be long form articles, it videos, podcasts, a mix of those things? Having that conversation, I think, puts you in a really good kind of concierge position when talking to internal audiences. And then the act of seeking is about not just then defaulting to say, okay, let me just go Google that for you, because that's where I think where you get that content shock, where you get overwhelmed sure. by using tools, algorithms to, to make it more efficient. So it's about, it's about seeking in an intelligent, productive, focused way. Sensing then is about when I, when you surface this content, what do you do with it to add some context and commentary to it? So that doesn't have to take a lot of effort. Uh, I think that's about adding some commentary and the simplest way of doing that is to, you know, if you read an article or watch a TED talk, just say, what did I learn from this and who would this help? If I was going to point this at some audience in my organization or some group of people, what would I say about it? Uh, you know, I might say, Here's an interesting idea from a completely different context. You know, here's something about engineering or creativity. How can we use this? How can we talk about this? How can, what can we do with this? Or it might be you uncover something that your competitors are doing. How should we respond to this? You can start a debate. You can provoke people. You can challenge them. And you can build connections across content. So it's that idea of just adding a, a human element to it. Um, as somebody else said, you know, machines can aggregate and algorithms can surface content, but only humans can make sense. Only humans can make connections between di diverse and different ideas. So that's, sure. I think, where we talk a lot about, you know, bots coming and taking all our jobs. Well, they, they can't take this job because this is an innately human activity is to make those connections across things. It's the area people sometimes miss, isn't it? It's very easy to find it and share. And sometimes you get a lot of shares with no commentary whatsoever. Um, mm. As you say, that's the piece in theory that you could automate, but it's the sense actually that makes the certainly me see a, see something that's been shared and make me want to read it more. If you see that bit of social commentary as to why it's yeah. been shared, particularly look at the background behind who shared it. Um, yeah, and we, and we know this. I think when we look at you know if someone posts an article on LinkedIn, you know, of, of course I'll read the article, but I'm equally interested in the comments underneath sure. it. You know, what are people saying? How are they building on this? Do they agree, disagree? Are they challenging it? Are they adding their own thoughts? So so that commentary, I think, has an incredible value. And inside organizations, if you're getting, you know, people who are engaged with this content, who can use it, commenting, um, starting a discussion about it, that has as much value, I think, as the source content itself. So that so that bit, right. I always say to people, don't don't skip that sense because that, that sense moment, that's where you really make it human and specific to the organization. Uh, and then just to round that out, sharing, simply about, well, where do we put this? Where do we put it? So it's, as you said earlier, to make it easy for people. You don't want it to be a barrier to find this content. You've done all the work to seek it, uh, seek it out, make sense of it. Now put it somewhere where it's easy for people. And that really depends on the organization. That might be embedding it into uh, a learning platform, an intranet, a CRM, 
It might be just good old email if that's what people want to receive. And again, you have to ask your audience, well, what will make this easy for you? I don't want you to have to go somewhere else where it's, you know, you're going to forget to go there. I want to put it into the workflow. And then it's about building that habit, you know, constantly sharing, you know, all of these subjects that we, that we try to track every day are moving targets. You know, new stuff is going to be published tomorrow. You've got to, you know, go back, find it, seek, send, share again. So it's building that habit over time. So I just think of it as a, as a, as a simple, easy to remember cycle of activities that if you constantly repeat them, you're building good curation habits. Excellent. And it's, uh, that was nearly to steal the second point of it, but it makes total sense to follow those three steps. Um, I've certainly fallen foul of going to step one of seeking and then straight to step three of sharing without making sense of it for, for my audience. And I think um, certainly in terms of the engagement we get back, we get a lot more engagement if I add that social commentary piece. So I think it's it's, it's great yeah. advice. So if we wanted to give some of the learning and development listeners some takeaway practical steps that perhaps they can immediately implement to successfully curate content, what would they be? And, and are there ways that we can make these steps become a habit. You mentioned habit a, minute, a moment ago in your mm-hmm. seek sets and share model for people rather than a distraction or even bigger, a time stealer for people. Yeah, I mean, my, my basic advice, cliche though it might sound, is just start to start doing it if you're not doing it right now. And when I talk to people, most people say, well, once you explain what curation is, I'm kind of doing that to some degree. I do read articles on Harvard Business Review or McKinsey or whatever it is. So you're, you're already kind of seeking, though you may not be doing it in a, in a structured way. So, so step one, I think, is just think about your habits. Think about where time goes. You know, do, are you spending more time kind of flicking between things, browsing things, you know, watching half a video and then realizing it wasn't relevant? That's a good indicator that you, you, know, you can, you can refine your seeking and you need to do a bit more around your filters and your control to, to do that, to do that better. Yeah. Um, I often say to LD teams, start with yourself. You know, there's so many, interesting things happening in learning and development right now. We've got the rise of big data. We've got predictive analytics. We've got artificial intelligence, virtual reality. These are all things that, you know, five years ago we weren't talking about. So they're new and there's new content published on them every day. It's a great time to tap into those. And if you want to kind of develop your career in learning and development, you need to know what's happening in these things and you need to be spotting the opportunities for them within learning. So start with yourself, you know, be the be the curation example that you want to see in the rest of the organization and then as you said building the habit i think is really important you know it, it, this is not something that you do you know once a month and then come back in a month later and say has anything happened because you know lots of things will have changed if you're not doing it you know my view is do it every day you know and that might just be 10 minutes a day it might be okay every day i will read three articles or you know read one article watch one video listen to one podcast and then spend and it, 30 seconds just making sense of them. You don't have to write, you know, a 500 word essay about what you thought about it. It can just be a quick comment. I found this useful. This is why I found it useful. What do you think? So, so building that and then sharing it, obviously sharing it maybe internally, but also externally on, on, on social networks, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever your audience is engaged. So build that habit, start small, 10 minutes a day. You can always scale, scale up from there over time. Um, and in terms of habits, I'm a big fan of, uh, BJ Fogg. Um, who's written a lot about persuasive technology and about building habits. His view is the easiest way to, to build a habit in anything is to anchor it to something that you already do by default every day. So for me, I drink way too much coffee, but yeah, every morning mm-hmm. after my first cup of coffee, I'll delve into, you know, on Anders Pink, we, we create these briefings on different topics and I'll just quickly scan what's happened. You know, what, what's come through in the last, uh, in the last 24 hours that I need to, that I need to look at. 
And I'll try to do that three times a day, you know, uh, attaching it to, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning, cup of coffee in the afternoon, and then maybe lasting, lasting in the evening. Um, and if, if you can, if you can attach it to something that you're already doing by default, it just becomes a more natural habit, I think, over time. And there's, you know, if you, if you think about doing that over a period of time, you know, if you, if you do say three 10 minute bursts a day, which might sound like a lot, but I, I think if you think about, you know, can you carve out 30 minutes to continuously read? I think you can. We're all on the move. You've got you know, minutes on the train or in, on commutes where you can where you can consume content. Over the course of a year, you'll read 1,500 articles if you do that. Wow. And to me, that's if you did an MBA, would you read 1,500 articles? But it's a huge investment uh, to make in yourself. But what better investment can you make for yourself and for your colleagues to continuously consume and, and stay up to date? So, so build that habit. Uh, start small, build it over time. Great answer. Great answer. Thank you. So let's assume the L&D professionals listening to the podcast are already working on content creation processes. They're already a little bit ahead of the curve in that sense. What are the key strategies you would recommend to help them make their content creation processes even more efficient? So the number one thing I would I would say in terms of efficiencies, if you're not using some kind of tool or algorithm for at least the seeking step, Think about think about doing that. We have one at Anders Pink, but there are there are others out there. Try try them all. Find the one that works best for you. Um, don't try and manually um, filter content. That's that's hard work. There are there are thousands and thousands of sources out there. You need to do something to organize them and make it more efficient to bring that content into you. So that might be saying, okay, I'm interested in um, leadership, but I trust maybe 20, 30 sites that I think are good quality sites. And I would say also. Be diverse in the sources that you choose. You know, there's some obvious big ones. The big publishers are going to publish good quality content. So you know you're going to get good stuff from Learn Business School, McKinsey, Harvard. But there's also some niche people who, you know, may not be obvious. They may not have huge audiences, but they publish great content. Seek them out and add them as a source as well. So you're, you're, you're casting a kind of a, a sufficiently wide net. So you're getting diverse points of view, but not so wide that you're drowning in, in poor quality content. So that'd be the number one thing I would say is use, use tools, algorithms to help you aggregate. So you've at least got a baseline of good quality content to start with. Um, and then the second thing I would, I would say to them is, you know, again, back to those two points. Take the time to to add sense to it. Don't just to put through an unfiltered feed of content and ask people to discern for themselves. Take the time to 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 add those thirty seconds of of insight from your perspective. And it doesn't have to be you as a learning development professional. I think this is a great way where we can work with subject matter experts or domain experts inside organizations. So you can go to um, the head of the sales team and say, "Look, we I've built this feed of content." I'd really like you to be the one who makes sense of this. You're the expert, you know, you're running the team. You, you add in or find someone in your team who's, you know, really good at looking outside and likes to consume content. Get them to add their comments. So find a partner in the, in the, in the teams that you're creating content for. Get them involved. Get them to share the load in terms of sense making and, and adding value. And then think about where you're going to put it. So, you know, efficiency, I think is a proxy for, for time. If you're putting this content in a place where it's just not getting traction, think again about where it could be. You know, look at look at where people are engaged in audiences. We have a, a huge number of our clients and partners who use Slack. Use Slack every day, and I think Slack is kind of a stealth learning tool. You know, it's it's where a lot of us do our collaboration, where we share ideas, where we work out our thoughts together. Could you just embed this in Slack? That's one thing that we do. We've built a, a Slack integration that allows you to just surface content directly in there and then have the, all that Slack style interaction, comments, liking, saving, et cetera, in there. So, so where you put this, I think is re, is really important if you want it to, to be sticky and, and engage people. So, so I think just think about your seek sense share process. Think about how you can use 
humans and technology to make that a more efficient uh, process. Great. And it's also, I'm guessing with the, with the tools that you mentioned, it's a really good way to stay on top of new articles coming out. I mean, whether it's Think Learning, whether it's ourselves at JJ Recruitment, we, you know, we write a number of white papers on very specific niche um, subjects in relation to human resources, payroll, learning and development, whatever it might be. But if you've found a website that delivers good content, presumably if you've got that link to the tool, when new content is made available, you know, you're going to be the first to know. You don't have to keep going back to it and checking and checking. You're going to be informed as it comes into you, presumably. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what we do with our tool is we just we bring the content to you rather than you having to go and check 20, 30, 50 different sites all aggregated together for you. So you can you can go into a niche, find the sources, add them in, and then you'll never miss anything from those sites. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so far, we've been talking a lot about how to generate content, how to find it. Uh, I'm also keen to understand from your perspective, uh, Stephen, why you think it's so important that L&D professionals actively engage in content curation. You know, we talked about how how stressed they can be with the amount of work they've got um, to, to, to contend with as it is. So in your view, what are the key benefits of having a very clear content creation strategy? And what are the risks, I guess, if you look at the other side, of them not getting on board with content creation? If someone says to you they haven't got enough time to do it, you know, what, what are they missing out on? Yeah, and I think that comes back, you know, the risk and, and, and conversely, the benefit is all about customer service. You know, we have internal customers uh, as L&D professionals, e- either in our, in our client organizations, if you're on the vendor side, or uh, as your colleagues, if you're, if you're on the client side. What, what do those, what do those consumers, what do those customers want? Well, well, they're just like us. You know, their, their, their habits for consumption of content are influenced by the web. They're used to being able to quickly scan content. They're used, they're used to receiving small, easily digestible pieces of content. Um, Jane Hart, who I mentioned earlier, did a great piece of research uh, recently where she, she asked a, a very wide cross-section of learners, you know, from, from most essential to least essential, how do you rank these different styles of learning? Right at the top of the list was, you know, learning on the job, as you'd expect, but short resources, web-based resources, peer discussions with colleagues, um, and, and, and conversations inside communities. Those who are ranked right at the top, right at the bottom of the list, e-learning courses, classroom courses. Oh, wow. And what I would say to L&D is think about that. Think about what learners are telling us what we want and then think about where do we spend our time and our budget and our energy. And I think it's still largely on those lower ranked types. So I think the opportunity is flip that flip that model and say, okay, instead of defaulting to saying whatever learning need you have, we're going to build a a formal structured course to respond to it and thinking, how do I do something that's a little bit more nimble, a little bit more agile, a a little bit more recent relevant, easier to keep up to date. And again, that's not saying we don't need courses. I'm not rating against the idea of formal learning. You absolutely do need those to build a level of competency, to get from A to B in terms of uh, uh, developing your skills and having a structured experience, courses will always, I think, remain absolutely vital. But they're not enough. They're just not enough. I could build, you know, you and I could sit down right now and, and, and develop the best course in the world on best practice in recruitment. But you and I both know, Nick, someone is going to publish something tomorrow that's great sure. and it's not in our course. Sure. So what do we do? We're just going to miss it? Or are we going to wait for a year and update the course and add it in then when something else has already happened? I think it's about supplementing that experience. So so it gives, I think, L&D professionals an opportunity to be more agile, to be more nimble, to give people what they really want and to look beyond those formal courses. 
you made the great point earlier about time saving. You know, there's some great stats uh, out there, well, kind of depressing stats out there from from IDC about how much time the average, the average knowledge worker, they say, spends about nine and a half hours a week just looking for information. If they're looking for information and not finding it, if you could just carve 10% out of that and save them that time saying, look, you, you don't need to go checking 50 different places to find the best insights on artificial intelligence uh, as applied to HR. We've got them right here for you. You're, you're providing a phenomenal service to people. You know, you're, you're saving them time that they can spend being productive and using that content and, and applying it. So, so time saving, delivering to people. And then, as you said, cost, cost, you know, budgets for trading are always under pressure. Curating content does not have to be expensive. A lot of the best content is out there in the public domain. It's just a matter of bringing it in. So I think, you, I think you're, you're, you're saving time. You're adding value. You're reducing costs. And I think if you could, if you, as an LD professional, if you can do those three things and, and show to your, um, your, your budget funders, your stakeholders, this is what I'm doing. I think you're on, you're, 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 you're onto a winner in, in terms of changing just your perception of L&D as a, as a service orientated value, value adding team. The risk to answer the other part of your question, if you don't do it, people are just going to do it for themselves. You know, there's, there's stats from a, towards maturity that show that, you know, 70% of people, find external resources more valuable than than e-learning courses so they're just they're voting for themselves anyway the risk i think for lnd is if people are just going around you and saying thanks for all the nice learning that you made but i'm just going to get it myself what does that say about the value that you're bringing to the organization so i don't mean that to sound threatening or a risk but it's it's either do this for people or they're just going to do it for themselves and i think if you can do it and do it in a more organized way you're you're adding value and you're you're redefining what what lnd is i think that's a fantastic response and i think you mentioned on the recruitment example that you gave it's about keeping or staying relevant if i wrote a recruitment course now even next month there'll be some new technology or new feature or something within the recruitment industry that, that that changes the way that we that we do things that can be out of date very, very quickly. I don't want to be too controversial, but there's a debate at the moment about those embarking on marketing degrees because if the, the content was written before you embark on it, by the time you've graduated, it's, you're actually out of date with, the, with what you've yeah. learned. So um, if you can stay yeah. relevant, then you're not going to miss a trick, which is also important as well, and, or, or miss out on something perhaps your competitors are doing or have learned through, through their strategy. So um, no, fantastic. Let's assume that I've listened to this podcast and I've gone out and developed, found, or even curated some brilliant content myself. Where and how would you mm-hmm. recommend I shared that information? So I think that comes down to, well, what effect are you trying to achieve with your content, whether it's content you've made or, or, or curated? Are you trying to change behavior? Are you trying to keep a specific audience up to date? Um, it's about understanding what your, what your audience wants and needs and that you may be serving multiple different audiences. You may be dealing with an internal audience to try to help them stay up to date on a topic. But curation, I think is also, and you mentioned marketing there, you know, the, the word content curation, you know, we were kind of latecomers to it in learning the, the marketing people are all over this. You know, they've been curating content for a long time, but they're doing it in a slightly different way. They're doing it to build authority. They're doing it, um, to tell their external audiences. It's not all about us. It's not just read my blog, read my blog, buy my stuff. It's I am up to date on what's happening in my industry. I recognize nobody has a monopoly on all the great ideas. I don't mind if my competitor publishes something that's really good. If I think it's good, I will share it with you, you know, my network, my prospects, but I'll add my own spin on it as well. I'll add my thoughts and add my value. And I think the thing is when you do that, you get the credit, you know, even though it's somebody else's content, you've surfaced it, you've brought it to people's attention, you've added your context and your, your insights to it. That comes back to you in terms of building your 
authority, your credibility as an as a as an expert uh, expert in the market. So so if that's the fact you're you're, uh, you're trying to achieve, I think think about the channels, think about where your audiences are, who you want to engage with this content, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, an internal audience that is uh, in in Slack or in your internet or in your learning platform. Um, and think about where it will have the most impact. And it may be all of the above. You may want to share it in multiple different channels and have a slightly different take on it, depending on which, which, which channels you're in. So, so where it lands, I think is really important, getting those channels right, thinking about the formats that people like to consume and then asking, you know, think, thinking about feedback on those. Do people want short uh, focused content? Do they want a deeper dive? Would they be interested in a, a more detailed report that I'm willing to share? And then balancing those things. You know, we need long form, we need short form content. You need a balance between those things. So getting the format right, getting the channel right. And then I think thinking about the pace of sharing. You know, I think we 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 all see people on, on LinkedIn and, and on, on Twitter and other networks who share so much that it's very hard to keep up with them. So I think it's about finding that balance as well is is if for the audiences that you're 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 sharing content with internally or externally, how much is too much? How much is just enough? Is it if I share five pieces of content a week with my in, internal colleagues in my R and D team, is that enough? Do they want more? Do they want less? So it's 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 understanding where to share, how much to share, what the right pace is. Do people want new things every day? Do they just want them, you know, less frequently than that? Would they be happy with maybe just a weekly summary email or a summary blog post from you? Um, and 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 getting getting that balance right. So just be considerate of your audience. I would say is the is the key question. I've got friends that, for example, are but always sharing funny virals. But the interesting thing is if they're sending me a funny video every week, I make the association that they are funny. It's not actually their content, but because they're always sharing it to me, that association gets ingrained with me. And I think if you want to raise your own profile, if you're always sharing good, relevant, professional L&D content, for example, or brand content, whatever it might be, you actually get a, you become associated with the content. So it's a great way to put my recruitment hat on. For those listening to this podcast to raise their yep. own profiles, um, whether they're an L&D manager, L&D administrator, whatever it might be, if you want to raise your own profile, you can do that actually by sharing really good, relevant content on a regular basis. And I would add, I think you're absolutely right, I'd, I'd, I'd add something to that, which is when you share content, when you curate content and you share it on social networks, so with a bit of a marketing hat on, always credit your source. You always thank whoever it is who you know, wrote the content in in the first place. I think there's a twofold aspect to that. One, it's just courtesy. You know, it's 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 recognizing somebody else's source's content. So it's just good good practice, good sure. manners to do that. But also, I've found over the years that is a great way to build relationships with influencers. So someone with authority in a certain space writes a piece of content. You thank them for it. You add a comment. I've built so many relationships on on LinkedIn and, and other social networks by doing that because you 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 show the influencer that you're sharing their content to the to your audience. That's yeah. good for them. It's good for you, but also you build a relationship with them. So you know I, I, you know I'm sure many of your listeners are in the L and D market and looking to kind of build their market share, build their brand. You know, someone said to me a long time ago, you, you are the company you keep on social networks. So build relationships with influencers. I think it makes, it makes a huge, disproportionately huge impact on, on your standing and your, and your authority. And you're, it's, it doesn't mean you, you have to create all the content. You should, of course, be creating your own content as well. But curation from a marketing perspective is a great way to build, build relationships with your audience and with the people who have. Yeah, fantastic you. point. Fantastic point. So look, I know that one of the biggest objections to those still perhaps on the fence, when it comes to content creation, there's going to be the idea of committing more time to what is already a stretch day for them. I know that we're talking about tools that we can, hopefully if you do it right, you're actually going to reduce your time because it's going to be more targeted. But 
I also know there's a key role that technology plays here, and obviously Anders uh, Pink have, have tools that, that, that are going to help with that time um, aspect of it. But how easy is it to automate the content curation process? Hmm. Well, the time thing is interesting. You know, and people do say, you know, I know I should be curating content, but I, I don't have time to do it. And I say, and I'd probably say it somewhat cheekily, well, do you have time to check your Facebook? Because uh, do you have time to look at Twitter? Do you have time to flick through your LinkedIn feed? You probably do. You're probably investing a fair amount of time on those things, but not in any structured way. So, so what are you getting out of that time? You know, uh, uh, could you could you redeploy that time in a, in a more focused and more structured manner? So rather than going to those tools and just kind of randomly see what comes into them um, and, and allowing other people to curate content for you, just take control, curate it for yourself. You know, you can you can take all of those tools. And what we do uh, at Anders Pink is you could say, OK, I'll bring in LinkedIn. I'll, I'll bring in, you know, 25 people on Twitter that I, that I like and admire. I'll bring in. 10, 15, 20, 1,000 sites that I trust, but I only want to see content from them when it's on topic for me, at least in, in the Anders Pink briefings. So, so say, for example, Richard Branson, I, I, you know, I think he's, he's great on social media. He shares a lot of great stuff. Some of it I'm interested in, some of it I'm less interested in. When he has something great to say about leadership, when I'm tracking the leadership topic, I want to see it. When he's you know flying to the moon in a balloon, Nice, but I don't want to see it right now. It's just not relevant to me. So, so our filters allow you to say, only show me content from Richard Branson when it mentions leadership, management, training, values, you know, whatever, whatever terms you want to apply to it. So, so our filters at least allow, allow you to do that. And others, others do this as well. But our view is you need to be very fine grained about how you do this. You know, cliche though it sounds, less is definitely more. There is no point in replicating what Google does and saying, Here's a hundred million articles on leadership. That's, you know, I, I, I don't think that adds much value. I'd rather say here's 10 articles on leadership, but they're very specific to the sources you trust, the keywords that you're tracking, um, the influencers that you admire and just bringing that in. So, so the technology allows you to do that initial layer of controlling, aggregating, filtering the way that you want to. Um, what technology doesn't do for you is it can't read it for you and tell you what's great about it. And that's what humans do. So, you know, I am realistic with people saying technology can save you time in that seeking step, but sensing is down to you. That's, and that's what we should be doing as, 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 as penalty professionals and as, as humans, as consumers of content is, is reading that content quickly adding value and then sharing it. We do help to automate the share process as well. So if you want to schedule things to to buffer or share them to Twitter or LinkedIn or through our API, you can push them into learning platforms like Tatara Learn or like uh, Slack or other platforms as well. You can automate that process. So the kind of the technical messiness of copying and pasting from one platform to another, you don't have to worry about that. We have, we handle that bit. So get the kind of the seeking and um, sharing bit Technology can definitely make things efficient for you. Just don't forget that sense. And if I understand it correctly, you know, for those people that are spending a lot of time logging into Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn independently, you can do it all from one platform. Yeah, exactly. So you could take everybody that you follow on Twitter, bring them all in, or or bring in your Twitter lists, or you know, particular people that you admire, or sources, or RSS feeds. Put them all into what we call a briefing. A briefing is just a collection of sources filtered by whatever keywords you want to use and then that will constantly keep up to date so rather than you having to check linkedin check twitter check 25 different websites it's all just comes together into one place updates every four hours so it gives you that initial feed of content that you can scan consume add a comment to 
and then share to wherever you you want to share it to. So that's that's what we're trying to do. Just just make that process more more efficient for you. Machines can automate the aggregation of content. Humans are the people who make sense, and humans are the ones who decide where should I share this and and with who. Excellent answer. Thank you, Stephen. Now, in a moment, we're going to find out a little bit more about you. But before we do, here's a quick advert break from our sponsors, Think Learning. Engage, learn, perform with Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. We're experts in solving the challenges of targeting, tracking, training in regulated environments. We have developed the Totara platform to provide a cost-effective, organisation-wide talent solution that can help you to provide a safer and better place to work. Customizable workflows promotes engagement through onboarding and induction, whilst an intuitive user interface helps drive ongoing engagement with learning. Bespoke workflows for performance appraisal and integration to payroll and recruitment systems transform Totara into a powerful and holistic talent platform. You'll find us to be responsive, collaborative and solution-focused. Visit thinklearning.com for more information. So I'm going to ask you 10 quick questions uh, all about you. Time to find out more about you. How would your friends describe you and how would your work colleagues describe you? I would hope they would say I'm passionate about what I do. You know, I really have I've always been passionate about content and about learning and about staying up to date on content. Um, I'd hope that. How would your friends describe you and how would your work colleagues describe you? Um, you probably have to ask them and what they what they might say to me and what they might say to you could be very different. But um, I would hope they would say I'm passionate about what I do. You know, I really have I've always been passionate about content and about learning and about staying up to date on content. I make mistakes all the time, but I'm open to learning from them and I don't take myself too seriously. So professionally or personally, what is your proudest achievement to date? Well, personally, I'm sure you get this answer all the time. Yeah, I'm very lucky to have three great kids and with my wife Dawn, be able to raise them to be happy, confident. They even managed to spend some time not on the internet, which is a, a difficult achievement in the in, in the 21st Perfect. century, but very obviously very proud of that personally. Professionally, I think I'd go back to the first business that I that I, I started, Kineo, back in uh, yeah, 2005 with, with three great friends and colleagues to be able to grow that to... 200, 240 employees um, at the time we sold it and to be able to build, you know, a family uh, around that and to, to hold that together and to help it to grow and to support the people in that business and support their families and have it still going, still as a legacy. It's still going great as part, as part of City and Gills. So to take that from zero to, to build that into a, a global business, incredibly proud, proud of that professionally. Brilliant. How about a time when things haven't gone the way you wanted? Things often don't go the way I want. I suppose two things. I don't really like to over over plan. I think a habit that I've built and kind of encouraged uh, along with colleagues uh, is, again, cliche, but that kind of ready, fire, aim approach. You know, just try something, see if it works. And if it doesn't, you know, ditch it quickly or adjust it and, un, un, until it does. So... The, the positive side of that is it means kind of a lot of things that start as, as small experiments grow and become great. The, I suppose the, the downside of that is I, I take risks and sometimes those risks, you know, have a, have a consequence to them. So one example I, I can think of is, you know, back to, back to Kenya again, we wanted to go to the US. We could have sat around and done the kind of a 
three-year plan and done a huge amount of research. But our, our view is, no, we want to be in the US like now, like next week. So we moved very, very quickly to hire people in the US, open an office in the US. And there was a lot of energy and excitement about it. But I think we, we quickly realized we weren't really supporting it the right way. We were kind of saying, just figure it out, just just get on with it. And I think that's easy to do when you're sitting in Brighton and you're bringing in people and they're kind of right in front of you. It was a lot harder with our first kind of international uh, office to help people remotely. And I, I think I put a lot of pressure on people uh, in the US to kind of take the ball and run with it without providing them a huge amount of support. And I don't have any regrets around it because we could, as I say, we could have sat around and said, should we, shouldn't we? And, you know, years would have passed and competitors would have gone in and it's going to beaten us to there. So I'm very glad we did it. But I made it hard on, on people, I think, to, to do that. So I think what I've learned from that is, you know, over planning, taking chances, taking risks is good. Sometimes a little bit of planning is probably good to do as well. Sure. Well, great example. Great example. What are the things you do not like to do? Well, overly plan things. I think I think it, it, it is it's something I, I'm not a great fan of infinite to do lists and all that stuff. I think I find look, I, I kind of I know in my heart the things that I should be doing, and I kind of just go to them and 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 turn my attention to them. So I'm a bit. Um, I was thinking I was thinking about this. You know, Chicago is where you know I spent several years in 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 the US when I, in my early days in this industry. In Chicago is where we not coincidentally opened our US office because you know again sure. could have been a grand strategy. But I just actually wanted to go there. Two two things that um, I really liked about Chicago was the huge improv comedy scene there. You know, where people just make things up on the spot, and I got involved in that. I was lucky to be part of kind of a comedy group there. And there's a huge jazz culture there. And you know, both of those things, improv and jazz, are kind of about start somewhere try things might not work you might fall on your face but just keep going keep going adjust over time so you know i don't like to overly plan things and you know while i might have a vague destination in sight i just want to see where things go it's weird to kind of quote mike tyson in this context but my colleague steve actually brought this quote to my attention i use it all the time which is he said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face <laughs> and and i do get punched a lot you know when things go wrong and i need to adjust things but it's what you do next and it's back to that kind of improv jazz ideas how are you going to respond to this how are you going to react to this so i think if you're too rigid it's very hard to be responsive and to change on the fly it's similar kind of response that i would give myself as well i'm definitely not a planner Anyone that knows me i'm definitely not a planner i'm much more of a doer so um I get it. I, I totally get it. What I have learned, though, is you do need people who who can do this. And what I've been lucky in every business that I've I've um, you know founded or, or worked in is there are other people who say that's all very nice, but we do need a bit of a plan. So you know, as long as you have those people around you, you can indulge yourself in that in that way that I've, I've just described. Sure, but then put my recruitment hat back on. It's always good to have a recruitment strategy that involves recruiting people better than you at certain areas. So if I, Absolutely. make sure you're surrounded by those that are much better planning than, than, than I am. That makes my job a lot easier. Yeah. Look, you're, you're clearly a, a key leader within the learning space. From your perspective, what would you think would be the three qualities that a leader needs to have to demonstrate great leadership? The number one thing for, for being an effective leader is you have to be a learner. I think the best leaders are continuous learners, people who are open to new ideas, who are constantly looking around are outside the organization who are you know taking influence from from different places and are bringing those ideas in so i think you want your leaders to be the kind of the the natural seekers or kind of 
in Belbin's language kind of re- resources investigators who are, who are looking for information from, from different sites and, you know, um, leaders who are, you know, learners who, who look, who look in, in interesting places for ideas and, and, and bring them in and challenge their organizations to say, well, what can we do with this? Try things, make mistakes. It doesn't always have to be perfect, but let's try things. Let's move fast. Let's encourage experiments. You know, let's not talk about failures. Let's talk about near misses or not quite right yet. Uh, so setting that tone, being being humble, recognizing you don't know it all, and being very clear to people that you don't expect them to know it all. You want to you want to look external. I think Satya Nadella, who thinks doing an amazing job at Microsoft, he said, you know, I want to hire people who are not know it alls, um, but are learn it alls. You know, who are come in and have that have that idea of I'm hungry for new information. So I think that's that's it's really important to be that leader from from uh, that learner from the front and to set that tone across the organization. Second, I would say I always get a little bit suspect of leaders who aren't very close to clients, who aren't in front of their clients every day and having those conversations with them. Because I think that's that's where the beating heart of any, any business is, whatever industry you're in, is how much time you're spending with your clients. Third thing I would say is um, collaboration. One thing I've learned in the past couple of years, so coming out of Kineo and starting both Suma and Anders Pink, I'm now working with people who you know traditionally would have been competitors or you know arch enemies or anything like that. Now we're working together, you know, we're partners, we're integrating our products to connect with each other. So, so don't be too rigid about it's us versus them. I think there's a lot more collaboration industries. I think are more fluid, you know, today's competitor could be tomorrow's, you know, partner, collaborator, part of your organization. So just being open-minded about, you know, how to solve ultimately for the customer, how to work, how to work together and set that tone through the organization. So, so learning service collaboration, I think are are kind of three qualities I I would look for in leaders. Sure. Fantastic. Fantastic. Can you tell me about a recent project or problem where uh, that you made better, faster, smarter, more efficient, or indeed less expensive. Well, I think one of the, one of the things it, it took us a little while down this bank, kind of for the for the for the first kind of six months or or probably almost a year of of the product. We were we were we were a standalone product where it was if you want to do your curation, you got to come here, you got to come to our app or our platform and do it all here. Something that that. Uh, I realized, and again, this back to that whole collaboration is talking to to partners um, like Sean, I think, and others saying, you know, we need we need this to be in our platforms. Now, we could have taken the viewpoint, well, you know, it's our platform or you can't have it. But our view was, okay, what can we do? What can we do to make this easier for partners? What can we do to make, make it easier for the end user to display content in another platform? So developing that API, um, which allows us to connect to different platforms, is probably the biggest change that we that we made in the business and it, with jake salmon who's our, who's our cto um he's an incredibly effective developer and he built that api very very quickly a matter of weeks not not months and again it was a lot of successive approximation wasn't right the first time but we we developed it and refined it over time and that's been a huge change in in, in our business and i think for users of uh, our product inside of the platforms because it means they don't have to make a choice about you know, do I have to send all my people to yet another platform where they're going to forget their passwords and, you know, not remember to log in? You just pull it all into one place. So so that, I think, has brought some efficiency um, for our customers because it's it's bringing content all into one place. And APIs, I think, you know, it's 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 the way the web has gone is integrating platforms, making it seamless for the end user. So so that and then the spin-off integrations, whether it's for Slack or WordPress, kind of all using the API at its core, probably the biggest change that that, that we've seen in our in, in our business, and we get a lot of you know, positive feedback about that. Great answer, Stephen. When was the moment you first realised you were entering the L and D sector? 
And uh, was this always an aim from the day you left school? In, in the thousands of people I've been lucky to meet and work with in, at l and I've yet to meet someone that said, you know, from the age of seven, it's been my dream to, uh, to develop e-learning or, or build an LMS. I think we've all kind of accidentally come into this. Um, sure. So I, I, I studied uh, finance uh, in school and then I did a, a, a master's in, in, in drama. I was very interested in theater. So, so naturally I came out of that once like, what on earth do you do with those, those two things? So I, you know, I became a teacher for a while, did some journalism, did some writing, did some acting, all kind of what I thought were just random disconnected things. I got hired in the US in a company that what before this was ever even called e-learning was just computer-based training back then. They were looking for someone who knew a little bit about finance, knew a little bit about teaching and could do a bit of writing. So I kind of fell into it in that way. Probably after a year or so in there, I realized, you know, I actually love this. I love the idea of to understand a field, to immerse yourself in it, to, to learn all the nuances of it, and then try to figure out, well, what's the best way to explain this, to teach it to somebody else? How can I use, you know, storytelling, content, technology to, to, to make it happen? So that's a cycle I've been in for, you know, over 20 years now, and I'm still, still addicted to it. So probably took me years to realize now I'm in L&D, but you know, now that I'm here, I, I never want to leave it. I think I'll, I'll always be kind of trying to learn for myself and hopefully to help others learn as well. Excellent. And uh, something I didn't know before starting this podcast is uh, you did a master's in theater. I did exactly the same. And I also finished my MA in theater and didn't right know what to do with myself. <laughs> so I ended up in recruitment. But uh, Yeah, it's not exactly the... the I was surprised to find there isn't a burgeoning jobs market for uh, for theatre professionals. So <laughs> I quickly had to. But lots of transferable skills, which is good. Absolutely. <laughs> when have you been most satisfied in your life? Obviously, with all the things you've achieved, three kids, three very successful businesses. When have you been most satisfied? If you ask my wife, she'll tell me I'm never, never satisfied, which I know, again, sounds like a cliche, <laughs> but I think that's, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've been very, I've been very fortunate down through my career, but every day I try to be a little bit more satisfied. And what I try to do to help with that is uh, I'm a big believer in active reflection. Um, and I, I, I stole this idea from, from Tim Ferriss, you know, that I wrote for our work week and has, has a great podcast. Love Tim Ferriss. Love he has this idea. Yeah, he's great. And he may have taken it from somebody else. He's a great curator of content himself. But he has this idea of this five-minute journal. So the idea of that is every morning you answer three questions for yourself and whether you you know do it in your head or you write it down, it's up to you. But it's, you know, what am I grateful for today? What would make today great? And a kind of an I am statement about yourself. So I, I try to take just you know, five minutes in the morning, just quickly answer those questions. And in the evening, you know, look back and say, well, what made today great? And what would make tomorrow better? And I know those sound a little bit, you know, new agey type questions. I'm conscious of that even as I say it there, but I find, you know, to, to measure your level of satisfaction in life, I think you have to be constantly asking yourself those questions because otherwise I think you could drift. And I've done that in the past as well. You know, you put your head down, you do something for six months or a year, you look up and realize, am I liking this? Is this working? Should I be doing something else? And, and rather than have those big moments where, you know, you go on holidays, you go for a long walk, and then you think about those questions, ask them every day. And that's, that's what I try to do. Uh, there's always more I, I, I believe I can be doing. And that's what kind of keeps me, keeps me waking up every morning, I guess. Right. I'll put a link for those not familiar with Tim Ferriss to his podcast as well. It's, uh, it's well worth Definitely. a listen. It's something that I listen to every, uh, very regularly. It's, it's fantastic. If you could be given any superpower in the world, what would it be? So many to choose from. And all these Marvel movies are giving me more and more great ideas every time I look at them. Um, <laughs> one, I think, 
uh, I'm trying to develop this superpower. I'm not trying to sound like Iron Man, but is empathy. If if I could kind of step into somebody else's mind or their heart to understand what, what are they really feeling, what are they really thinking, what, you know, what's what's making them happy, what's making them sad. I think you know from a professional perspective, that's a lot of what we do is is try to understand our customers or our, or our partners or our colleagues. Empathy, man, I think would, would look terrible on a cape, but uh, that's probably something I, I would aim for. But I think that's a, that's a power that you know that's kind of with within us. You know, I think that's part of what learning is about it's part of what good communication is about listening to people so i think empathy empathy and education i think they're very very closely connected empathy man it is i think it's a very worthy superpower so we'll keep it there it is i'll let you design your own cape if you didn't work in learning and i sense you may have already lent a little bit towards what this might be but what would you be doing it's something i've, take, I've t- i took up in the last few years was 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 cooking and i love doing it uh, and you know I, I am i am not very good at it but it again is I'm, I'm learning from my mistakes and i'll probably be running a disastrous restaurant with you know some improv comedy and some jazz happening in the front room and me experimenting very unwisely in, <laughs> in, in the back room i think i think that would probably be a disastrous business idea, but I think I think it would be a lot of fun. So something that combines kind of writing, music, food, being around people, whether that adds up to a career, I don't know, but that's then maybe, maybe next time around. Great. Fantastic. What's not to like? Brilliant. Okay, so we're going to dive back into some LMD questions and some, uh, some key ones I'd like to, uh, to, to share with the listeners here. The LMD Podcast final questions to help listeners engage, learn and perform. Anders Pink, you are co-founder with Steve Rayson. I understand it's not the first time that you and Steve Rayson have worked together either. So what is it to date that makes your business relationship so successful or effective? Yes, it's it's our third business together. So um, first Kinio, then Basuma, and now, and now Anders Pink. So, so we're going back, um, gosh, gosh. 15, 16 years now of working together. So it's, it's quite a long time. I would say we were, we're, we're firstly, we're friends. Uh, you know, we, we met um, back in the, the first company we worked in together and got on really well. So we, there was a lot of time working side by side and getting to know each other before we started a business. Um, and within, within, you know, it was myself, myself and Steve, and then also Matt, Mark and Sven. So, you know, we had a, a great core team of, 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 of colleagues. Some of the things I think make us work well together where we, we, we look at things the same way. I think we both, we both try to find new ideas, as I was saying earlier, from, from external fields. So the whole idea of Anders Pink was, well, look, look how curation works in sales and marketing. Why can't this work in learning? So it's kind of bringing an idea you know, that we were refining in Bosumo and thinking, well, what is the learning view on this? So, you know, that's happened a lot down, down through our careers, kind of looking at different industries and thinking, well, how can we bring ideas in together? I think, you know, we have a good balance between strategy and execution. So, you know, Steve is, you know, I don't, it's not too small to say the word he's, you know, visionary and has brought so many great ideas into the learning technologies and, and, and this marketing industries. Even though I said earlier I'm a bit more, you know, jazzy and probably I do I can still get things done. So there's a lot of, you know, I'll I'll pick this up, I'll I'll try to express it. So he might come up with a kind of a loosely formed big idea. And then I do a lot of the kind of writing around, well, how do we explain this? How do we, you know, how do we make this realizable for people? How do we position this? How do we, how do we create content around this? So there's a good balance between kind of, you know, expressing ideas and then, uh, or coming up with ideas and then expressing those ideas that, in a way that people can, can, can touch on. So, so there's a good complement of skills, but also I think 
we support we support each other. You know, we, we used to joke about um, the previous business we were in is effectively they're just support groups for workaholics for us to hang out in together. And uh-huh. we try to find, find other people like this. But I think you need that in a business. You need you need the support. You know, someone's you know needs needs an extra hand or, need, or needs needs some help. We're there for each other. We also challenge each other. You know, we used to kind of dare each other, say who can get back to this customer the fastest, who can stay up the latest, and to say a lot you know there's there's no secret sauce about what we're doing we're just staying up later than than all the competition and just and just and just trying to do more so so steve's got an incredible amount of energy i've you know fed off that energy and he's kind of brought me up to a a level where i kind of you know uh, you know com- compete with him in terms of who could who can bring who can bring more to the table and we found that you know in in our next business with james and Henley within Basuma and now with, and, and with with jake and the team in, in anders pink is that energy has 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 stayed the same so so good complementary energies good complementary set of skills and we're friends brilliant answer i know some people are sometimes skeptical about going into to business partnerships but i think you're a shiny example of how it can really work well i know that you've also uh, partnered with other businesses as well one of those um is Sean Wilde, who's CEO at Think Learning, who obviously sponsored this L&D podcast. He's someone that I know very well as well through uh, OCR racing and, and HR and other bits and pieces. But the reason I mention it is when you go looking for business partners that can help grow your own companies, are there certain qualities that you look for? And if I was uh, an entrepreneur or an L&D professional listening to this podcast right now who was you know, considering bringing in partners or um introducing more JV kind of arranged joint venture arrangements with, with other businesses. Are there certain qualities that you would recommend that they look for? Yeah, and I think I think Sean and, and the whole team at Think Learning are, are a good example of this. I think, I think some of the qualities that we look for in partners and, and you know, we have a lot, Anders Pink is, you know, very much a partner business model. You know, we have a lot of people who integrate our product into their tools and platforms and, and, uh, and provide it through to their clients. So partnerships are really important to us. I look for the same things I think I look for in leaders. So kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, people who are... Sure keen to learn, who who like to experiment. And I think partnership is about experimentation. You know, I think we can all talk about, you know, strategic alliances, but the truth is, you know, nobody really knows how this is going to go until you actually try to do something together and get in front of customers together and see how it feels. So there's a, there's an element of stepping into the unknown and taking a kind of a calculated risk for, for both partners. So it's finding people who are willing to take that risk and, and, and to experiment. Um, people who are, you know, wanted, wanted to deliver more to their customers. Typically, we're talking to partners because there's a, you know, a win-win they want to deliver more we want to deliver more we want to do it together um and who are open to collaboration and our partnerships take all sorts of different formats where we're, we're co-developing a specific piece of code or a, or, a, or a plugin for a platform so you have to be willing to, to to jump into it together to both invest time and energy and resource and i think it is one of those things you know to kind of slightly contradict myself on the kind of jazz improv front you do have to be prepared to invest and to give it time to work you know i think it's very rare you find a partnership and then you know, a week later, you're you're inundated with with new customers. It takes time to build the relationships, you need to educate each other about how you work, what what the what the joint um, solution is to the market. That takes some time and investment, takes some patience on on, on both sides as well. So, um, so I think those are some of the things I, I look for in partnerships, and I'm delighted. You know, Sean is a good example. So, you know. Five years ago, I would have looked at Think Learning and say, "Okay, well, we're competitors. You know, we both we both sell to Tara Learn. That's changed now. We we don't offer an LMS. Sean does, and it's a great one. And they have a great solution. And the way that they've integrated Anders Pink into their into their platform, I think, is, is has been fantastic. So, 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 so more more of those is what what we're aiming for. Brilliant, fantastic. Now, as you're an advocate for L and D staff leading content creation practices for businesses, 
what are the steps you would recommend an L&D professional takes in order for them to own the content curation process? I would say um, first thing is find a pilot area within the organization. You don't have to start by saying we're going to curate content for everyone everywhere all the time. I think f find a pocket of the organization that's willing to go on this um, journey with you. Some of the ones that I find are particularly good, again, it kind of naturally defaults to well, what internal audiences are naturally outward looking, you know, who naturally who want to consume content. Again and again, that comes back to sales teams. So I would I would say if you have a sales team inside your organization or people who are responsible for you know frontline customer service, talk to them. They, you know, they're normally a really good start point because they can use external content about trends in the industry or what's happening in their clients or what's happening in their competitors, and they can apply it quite quickly. So there's a there's a natural appetite for for curation there. So so finding an organization, ideally a champion within that part of the business might be a leader, but it might not be. It might be just someone who's kind of naturally interested in, in curating content. So getting a, getting a partner within the organization, I think, is, 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 an, is an important place to start. Um, explaining to people what you're doing, you know, that the clients who I've seen do this really successfully, um, thinking one at the moment, um, Enterprise Ireland in, in Dublin, had a series of, series of programs, um, learning programs around various topics. So they're running one at the moment on Brexit and what Brexit means for Irish companies, um, they looked at that and they they said to their organization, we're going to do something a little bit different with this. We, yes, we're going to have formal courses, but we're also going to bring in content curation. And this is what we mean by that. So they took steps to explain to the rest of the business, to their stakeholders, this is what we're doing. And this is why we're doing it, because we need to continuously learn, because there's no point in saying here is a course about Brexit, because as we all know, Something is going to happen tomorrow or next week that's not in the courses. Back to our back to our point earlier. So ex expressing what you're doing to your stakeholders, to senior leadership, so they understand the value that you're trying to bring with it. Finding that group and then just doing it, and they've done it. AI have done it really well by just embedding um, content curation inside inside their platform and helping their learners constantly consume recent and relevant content. And they're able to feedback to the rest of the organization saying, look what we did. This saves people time. It saves, it, it saves us money because we're not writing all this content. We're just, we're just sourcing it. So I think good L&D professionals are, are, are good storytellers. So find the story that you think you can tell in your organization, make it happen, and then play back to people what worked. I think that's a way in which you can, you can own the process, even though you're involving lots of other, other people in it. So you know, just get started, find a project, make it happen. Brilliant response. Thank you. Are there any trends in content curation by sector? So are there any sectors that are doing this very well? Uh, are there sort of market leaders by sector or is it really quite a quite a random exercise in terms of who's doing it well at the moment? So we see a lot of people developing um, curated briefings on topics like artificial intelligence um, and they're often um, defining it by artificial intelligence in the context of you know learning, HR, pharma, insurance, fintech. So, you know, techno technologies that are traditionally maybe using technology in a more conservative way that are now getting massively disrupted. Um, so people trying to stay on top of those things. So I would say rather than a particular sector, it's almost like it's the agents of change within each sector that are that are driving this. So, so be that AI uh, or uh, VR or the use of big data, the, you know, those are those are constantly ones that we see. Other areas that we see um, people constantly consuming content around management and leadership. I think it's because there's so much written on those topics. There's so much new content that comes through every day, but but not always great quality. So it's about it's about refining those and build, building habits around those over time. And we also see a lot of people um, using it to track just what's happening in their industry. And that might be 
Let me take my 10 nearest competitors. Let me put in their URLs. Let me just stay on top of what they're doing. And I think that's a healthy thing to do. I mean, you can become obsessed with what your competitors are doing and miss, miss your own focus. But I think it is, it is wise to keep an eye on that. So, 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 so sub, sub strategies, I guess, within sectors is where, where we see a lot of, uh, a lot of curation happening. Sure. So if I was an LD professional, it's very easy for me to find, as you say, using Google, uh, an article on AI. But actually, if I'm being specific, what I might be looking for is, AI and how it affects the L&D industry and sort of bringing that kind of specifics into my search to yeah. find that relevant content as it is for me rather than exactly. the generalist exactly. content. Great. So if I was a business considering either improving upon my existing content or maybe even curating it for the very first time, what would you say are the key, in inverted commas, tangible business benefits, if you like, of a business having a content creation strategy? One of them is time saving. Um, and I think if you aggregate that over, over a large number of people in the organization, you know, going back to that uh, IDC stat of, you know, nine and a half hours a week looking for information, if you can save everybody, you know, even be conservative, if can you save people half an hour a week, um, to help them, help them stay up to date, um, I think you're providing a massive time saving back to the business and, you know, time is money and there's a huge opportunity cost if everyone's just kind of randomly browsing content on their own as individuals. Um, so I think that's, that's a massive saving. I think, I think a tangible one is bringing it into teams as well. So, you know, when we talk about the seek sense share process, you're sharing as a team, you know, as a, as a collective, uh, as a collective group of people who have a shared mission or a shared, a shared object, uh, objective that might be a sales team or a research team or a leadership team. There's a lot of research. Um, Harvard have been very good at this. It's showing that teams that build collective intelligence who are sense-making as a unit and who are being efficient about sharing ideas outperform other teams and they outperform them by, by some margin because because they're, they're building their collective intelligence so i think you know looking at the the delta that you get with performance of you know well-informed teams who are collectively learning together i think that that makes it that makes a huge difference as well i think if you're using curation for building your brand externally you can track that you can track you know engagements with your content a big part of what we do at both sumo is tracking the social virility and the performance of the content that you've uh, curated or that you've shared to tell you you know how much how much engagement that you're getting and i think there's, there's a lot of evidence to show if you curate content and you share it and you, you you take the time to build your thoughts and your comments into it you will build engagement over time and you know uh, I've I've built businesses d- doing it doing exactly that. So I, th- I think those are some of the, some of the benefits that you can see. They do take time to come. This is not something that you switch it on and then next week, you know, you can see the the immediate impact. I think you, again, this is something you've got to do regularly every day to to build up a head a head of steam around uh, around curation. Yeah, fantastic answer. It's almost like a, a seed by association, and it's, as you say, it's over a period of time that you see the benefits. Yeah, someone someone called it. Uh, they said doing content marketing and you doing curation like that is like compound interest. You know, you, you, it's infinitesimally small when you start, but over time, it, you do you do get returns. But you have to be prepared to put in the time to, to get there. Sure. No, great, great way of putting it. Great way of putting it. So look, it makes sense before we enter the final part of this podcast, which is the L and D vault, for me to ask you why learning and development professionals listening to this podcast should be encouraged to try Anders Pink. Can they access your services for free? 
What can they discover if they visit your website, which is anderspink.com? Tell us a little bit more about why people should be uh, should be checking out Anders Pink. Yeah, so you can access it for free. So if you just go to anderspink.com, you can just create a create a free account and, and log in and get and get started in there. What you can do in there is then you can create uh, what we call a briefing. So that's you know one of those um, collections of of content that you can then apply whatever um, rules and whatever filters you want to. So whether it's leadership, sales, big data, whatever topic you want, you can you can put in put in the topic and then filter it down by either keywords. So you can say, I want to see articles, but I only want to see videos or podcasts, or I only want to see articles that mention trends or tips or advice or case studies or whatever it might be, and then further filter it by specific sites. So I would say, yeah, log in, create a briefing. You, that briefing will stay live. Uh, that's totally free. It'll just update over time for you. Um, we have additional features which are around creating teams so you can bring in other people so you can all seek sense and share each other's briefings and we also have the api which was what allows you to export the content from anders pink into another platform be that a learning management system like total learn or um slack or internet or wordpress or where you're going to put it those two are paid services so so it's free to just go in and create a, a briefing for yourself just to get started and then you can upgrade to build a team get more briefings and then embed it into another platform. Um, why should people try it? I think was 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 part of your question. Well, yeah, it's free to try. So uh, obviously I'll say give it, give it a go and see what you think. But, you know, just see what value you get from it. You know, see, because we, you'll also get a daily email from us as well with kind of the top three articles on whatever briefings you've created. That'll just come straight into your, your inbox every day. And over time, just, just you know, do that seek, send, share. Just, you know, even, you know, we say to people, spend a week, spend two weeks, seeing what kind of content comes in, refine it to make it more specific to you. And then think about, you know, can you share this content? Can you share it with your social networks? Can you share it with colleagues as well? And that's where most of our businesses come from is people, you know, just trying it out, getting it right for themselves as individuals first, and then realizing as an L&D professional, I can be doing this at a greater scale. And now I have a means for doing it. I can serve multiple audiences. So, you know, we've got, we've got many clients who will have 40, 50, 100 briefings all on very diverse subjects, serving, you know, different audiences and different needs, sometimes different countries, different territories and different languages. Um, but they can do it efficiently because once you've set those briefings up, they will stay up to date automatically for you. So you don't have to go back in and, you know, reseek that content. It's just coming through for you. And then it makes that sensing and sharing that bit easier. So do try it out. Hopefully it'll save you some time. And the other thing I'd say is we're always trying to improve it. We're always trying to do better with it. So I welcome kind of any of your listeners' feedback on, on what we can what we can do um, and uh, to help help it get better over time. Fantastic. And uh, just, just to add to that, really, I think it's a, a really, really brilliant way to elevate either yourself as an individual or your brand as being an expert in your field. It's like that compound interest thing that you mentioned before. You know, start small. Let it grow big, but uh, the, you know the more content and the more tools you're able to access, and the more articles you're able to share, then uh, slowly but surely you become more and more associated with being experts, either individually or as a brand. So it's a it's a fantastic service. So we're going to open and finish with the uh, the L and D vault. Opening the L and D vault. Number one, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone working in learning and development right now? Well, I think if you're working in development right now, you know, there's so many tools, so many um, opportunities available to you to use you know, interesting me methods for storytelling, video, podcasts like these, um, curated content, whatever it might be. So 
I would say expose yourself to all of the emerging trends in this industry uh, because AI is going to change it. Big data is already changing it. All the new forms of content are, are changing it all the time. Um, LMSs are changing all the time. So, you know, be a continuous learner within this business, first of all. You know, be exposed to trends, build your craft, get good at design, expose yourself to all, all the new trends and all the technologies available to you. However, don't forget that technology is meaningless if it's not helping someone learn and perform better. So always keep, always keep an image of that learner in your mind when you're considering new tools, techniques, and technology. Is this actually going to help? Brilliant answer. Brilliant answer. Thank you. With the benefits of hindsight, what would be the one career decision you would change? So when I came, uh, when I came out of college with my fantastic uh, master's degree in theatre, which was utterly, uh, utterly made me <laughs> completely unemployable, I kind of panicked um, and I decided to work in banking for for a well, it was supposed to be a year. I think I lasted about nine months before I, I had to had to run away. Looking back, I, I suppose it's easy to say that was kind of a waste of a year because I, I I knew pretty quickly this this was just not for me. But having said that, if I hadn't done that, it probably wouldn't have got me into my first job in in the learning industry because my first job was all about building kind of courses in 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 financial services. So I had a little bit of domain um, knowledge around it so no regrets that's part of part of jazz right. you go and you just go on to the next thing sure brilliant well i guess it's it's, it's allowed you to create the journey that you've, you've got here now which is which is fab so when you look at the lnd profession from an eagle's viewpoint what do you think is holding the industry back I think there's a lot talked about in, in the industry around the perception of value that L&D delivers to, to organizations and you know there's been some fairly um, kind of sharp uh, research around saying, well, is L&D not perceived at the table, as it were, kind of at the senior senior leadership table within organizations? And I think L&D is, is often kind of down on itself because of that. And you get a lot of people saying, you know, this profession needs to blow itself up and, and re itself, reinvent itself again. I think that is holding the industry back a bit, but I think that's a little bit of that is self-fulfilling as well. Um, you know, if I look at, you know, I've been lucky to kind of work across marketing as well. Marketing as a discipline, you know, didn't exist 60, 70 years ago, but now it's at the table. You know, now everybody takes marketing seriously. There's a CMO that's, you know, normally part of the senior leadership team. So marketing, you know, fought its way to being a, a you know, a, a value adding component of, a, of any organization. Why can't learning? And I think there's a lot we can learn from how marketing people have demonstrated value, have been inventive, have found different ways of persuading people. I think the two disciplines are very, very closely related. So I think there's, you know, proving value, telling good stories, be a bit braver, tell tell more stories, evidence what you're doing, and show that you're inventing. So, you know, we've talked a lot today about curation using new tools and techniques. Show the organization that you're inventing and you and, and you're and you're and you're progressive. So so I think, you know, the industry is collectively perhaps holding itself mm -hmm. a little bit back in that regard. Having said that, you know, there's a lot of new great ideas, new technologies, new ideas coming in. It's about harnessing those and and bringing them into the organization and not defaulting to you know, 100-year-old, 500-year-old methods of instruction, i.e. defaulting to classroom or defaulting to linear instruction. That's what I think we need to get beyond because I think there's a lot of fatigue around kind of the same old ways of doing things. So great opportunities to, to, to reinvent ourselves and to, and to push forward. Fantastic. Now, if we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year it's been, perhaps I'm sat down with yourself and, uh, and Steve Rayson, what will you hope to have achieved? Uh, apart from opening the, the disastrous restaurant with uh, with jazz and improv in, in the front, that might take a few more yeah, years. Jazz um, and improv, yeah. <laughs> well, I would love to see content curation and continuous learning becoming core 
in the industry. And I don't just say this for ourselves at, at, at Atos Pink. Obviously, we've got some skin in the game in that. But I think I think back to the answer to the previous question is this is our opportunity to show that we can do things differently within L&D. We don't just rely on traditional methods for, for learning delivery. We've got something new to say. Um, so I would love to see, and I am seeing it already, is L&D professionals calling themselves curators, along with all the other hats that, they're, that, they, that they wear or are asked to wear, is thinking about yourself as a curator and, and, and calling that a, a core skill. I would love to see all organizations doing it, ideally with us. Yeah, um, fantastic if, if, if more and more people want to use our tool. But you know, of course, there are others out there as well. And we partner with lots of other people who do curation too. Um, and I would love to see it embedded in, into the workflow, you know, plugged into learning platforms or Slack or wherever people are already hanging out. So I'd love to see us become a, a curation nation. That sounds too small, uh, but it, it rolls off the tongue better than saying, let's, let's, let's become a world that curates. And I think for individuals as well, you know, I, I read and do write some about kind of fake news and echo chambers and all the kind of negative stuff that we've had with 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 Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and all, all the stuff about data. I think this is a moment where we collectively, as people consuming content, say, okay, we need to get a better handle on this. Otherwise, we're just going to drown or we're going to be looking at the wrong stuff and we don't know where it's coming from. So it's about taking control for ourselves, taking control for organizations and, and using curation to, to, to bring, some, bring some sanity back to how we consume content. Brilliant. So 2019, the year of the curation nation and a reduction in fake news. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good aim. This is it. <laughs> Modest goals, but you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So last question here. Finally, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone who is embarking on a career in learning and development? I would say, you know, learn your trade first. At the core of what we all do in L&D is I think we're ultimately trying to design or realize learning experiences, whether those are creating short resources or building um, more involved, um, longer form learning experiences and courses, build some stuff, you know, build, build some stuff for internal clients or external clients first and foremost, and get a few great projects under your belt. I mean, that was the, the most important thing when I started my career was, you know, getting stuck into some fairly meaty projects that were complex, that was a lot to be figured out and, but, you know, were delivered and were, and were successful. And I think once, once you go through that whole cycle of understanding what an audience needs, figuring out the scope, the timeline, the budget, the design considerations, the technology available to you, going through it and then realizing as everybody does halfway through the project, we need to change all this. It's not quite right. And then going through that reinvention, learning, learning by doing, learning by failure and getting it to the to to the right solution that cycle i think is is the best way to 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 build a career get stuck in do some great projects get them under your belt and then and then build on those and get comfortable with the technology that's 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 available that's available to you and you know great projects doesn't mean have to mean high end this can you know fit for purpose things that achieve their goals go into that cycle quickly i think that just builds your confidence over time and allows you to move on to, to bigger and, and, and greater things. Brilliant advice and a, and a great way to finish. And I think anyone who's working in, L, in L&D at the moment, you know, take it on board. Stephen Walsh has successfully grown companies to a combined value of over 25 million in revenues through the L&D space and content creation spaces. So, you know, I think it makes absolute sense to listen to to what Stephen has to say, um, not just in this little bit of advice in the L&D vault, but throughout this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Stephen, to have you on what is the first L&D podcast. I hope we can have you back again at a later date once it's a little bit more established. But thank you ever so much for giving up your time. 
Um, I will add links to the episode notes for anyone that wants to find out more about Anders Pink. Um, you can obviously visit the, web- the uh, website at anderspink.com. I'll also add a link to Stephen's book as well, uh, Content Curation for Learning, which can also be found, I think, at the anderspink.com website as well. But um, I'll, I'll add links to the episode notes. Just want to take this opportunity to once again say a huge thank you, Stephen, for joining me today on this podcast, sponsored by Think Learning. Thanks so much for having me, Nick, and thanks, thanks everyone for listening in. Really, really enjoyed talking to you. Pleasure. You've been listening to the LD Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast has been sponsored by Think Learning. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please review it, share it, and subscribe so you never miss a future episode.